Hello, and welcome to the July edition of Cinetopia on EHFM. I'm Amanda, co-founder of Cinetopia, joined here with Jim Ross, managing editor of Take One magazine. Hello. And Annie Esikainen, also co-founder of Cinetopia. Hi. Paul Bruce is in the midst of watching a massive amount of short films for the Edinburgh Short Film Festival. I believe submissions just closed a week or so ago, so he will join us next month. We are a few weeks after the Edinburgh International Film Festival, and I saw the both of you around the festival a lot, um, so I wanted to hear what you guys thought about this year's festival and kind of give a recap of what, what we saw and what we did. So uh, I saw a whole bunch of things, uh, some at public screenings, some at press screenings. Uh, a lot of good ones, uh, some that I was less sold on. I'd be lying if I said there was anything that really um, blew my mind, if I'm being honest. The one exception to that would probably be a documentary called Scheme Birds, uh, which we reviewed on the special edition of the Cinetopia podcast, which was me and some other Take One writers, so I'd encourage people to check that out. But beyond that, I would check that film out. It's very interesting. Uh, it's directed by two Swedes, interestingly, but it looks at a, a housing scheme in Motherwell, follows a young girl through it, and it's basically kind of their, uh, you know, the story of the people, and it's not voyeuristic or anything. It's really quite a remarkable documentary. I think that's probably my standout film, to be honest. There were a bunch of others that were quite good, and I'm sure it'll come back, but I think that was the standout for me. Yeah, I don't think I had any standouts really either. I uh, I went to see Up the Mountain, I think, was the best of the fest for me. Um, but that was already in Edfa, where it got it premiered, and everybody in there told me to go and see it. And this is the first time I had the chance to do it. And I really enjoyed it. It's a long film, but it's interesting because it's, uh, it's about a, a painting retreat, sort of, on uh, Chinese mountains. And it's filmed in four by three, so it's a similar size in the paintings that they are painting in. So it's a very visual story. Um, other films I saw uh, actually went on to win awards as well. So the best documentary feature, Sakawa, um, which on its premise was more interesting than it actually was, uh, but it was still enjoyable. A film from Ghana um, about um, uh, people like poor people in there who are scamming Westerners through these kind of like sex scams of like pretending to be women, even though they're men. And it's a ridiculously funny story at times because the, the, the levels that they go through to get money from these people and how easily people are swayed and, and, and fooled. It's very, very good. But like it wasn't an amazing documentary. It was good. It, it won the best feature doc um, prize, I think. And then, then I saw the Finnish film that I spoke about on our previous podcast, Aurora, who went on to win uh, Best International Feature, which I was surprised of, but I'm happy about. Um, it was good. Yeah, I, I saw probably about five or six films, and <laughs> they were fine. Some of them we might be talking about later. But uh, yeah, I, I particularly spent a lot of time in the industry events and uh, thought there were some really interesting things. A lot of talks about um, funding your first feature, uh, a lot of conversations about co-productions and our friend uh, Carice was very much involved in creating that and so it was it was nice to see uh, how that all came together. So the one's the nice thing about the Edinburgh International Film Festival is that they run this industry program at, at the same time as the film festival so it's a good space if you're a filmmaker to come to because especially if you're, your film's in it then you can come and then you can also learn a lot from the community that is here. So today in addition to um, talking a little bit about our time in the Edinburgh International Film Festival, 
we're going to be reviewing three films out in theaters or in demand. Uh, Jim Jarmusch's The Dead Don't Die that originally, I think, premiered at Cannes. Um, Agnes Varda's uh, latest Varda by Agnes that was originally at um, Berlin Alley, but it was at the Edinburgh International Film Festival for its uh, UK um, premiere. And David Farhead's Armstrong, a documentary about Neil Armstrong. During the festival, Jim interviewed Sasha Collington, director of Live Type D. So we'll hear a bit uh, from her and her filmmaking of that. And I sat down with Chris Aiken from Shortcom uh, Comedy Film Festival, which is coming up in August during the Fringe Festival period, to talk about his upcoming festival and Cenotopia. We are collaborating with him on an industry day. <laughs> up in our reviews is uh, Jim Jarmusch's The Dead Don't Die. I forgot to mention that was also at the Edinburgh International Film Festival as well. In this peaceful town, on these quiet streets, something terrifying, something horrifying is coming. Excuse me, we're closed. Get away from me! What was it? A wild animal? This is really awful. Maybe the worst thing I've ever seen. What was it, wild animals? So what are you thinking? I'm thinking zombies. What? What did everyone think about that film? Jim, did you want to tell us a little bit about what it's about? Yeah, so I'll get to what I thought of it in a minute, but basically it is a zombie comedy uh, from Jim Jarmusch, who, of course, we all probably know very well. And it's, sent, it's set in a small town called Centerville, uh, which I think is meant to be in Ohio. I can't quite remember, but I think, I think it's meant to be Ohio. Um, and basically, we opened the film with um, two local cops, played by Bill Murray and Adam Driver. And there's a lot of stuff on the news about how polar fracking has knocked the Earth off its rotational axis, and this is causing lots of weird things to happen, uh, you know, like telecommunications are cutting out, it's uh, screwed up all the daylight hours in uh, places, and you know, it's all kind of out of whack. And one of the things that starts to happen as the film progresses, of course, is that, well, I say of course, I mean, not, not like this is something we would expect to happen, that the dead start coming back to life. There's now a zombie outbreak. So basically, it's then following mainly um, the two local cops, uh, but there's a bunch of other characters in the mix. You've got Steve Buscemi playing a quite racist uh, local farmer. You've got Tilda Swinton playing a Scottish, actually, mortician who wields a katana. Um, you know, because why not? And, you know, various other uh, people and characters coming and going and basically reacting to this outbreak as it happens. So that's basically the setup of the film. Now, as you might expect from the director, it's quite self-aware, um, and we'll get to that in a moment, I suspect. And it's a little bit unclear to me as to whether it's trying to do social commentary or poke fun at other social commentary. But it's very much set up as a comedy, and it basically goes in that, that fashion, quite a self-aware zombie comedy. Yeah, I, uh, I saw an interview 
it was an interesting experience. There was someone who's high on, I don't know what, and they were touching the walls. <laughs> well, that was at times more funnier than the film. Um, I did not like it. I, I, what you said about it maybe being, making, poking fun of social commentary about climate change and stuff kind of changes my opinion, maybe a bit if it is that. But if it is trying to be a social commentary on, on polar fracking or any kind of climate change things, it just really lands flat. It feels like it's really late to the game. Like it, those kind of arguments that you've heard a hundred times and then, oh, everybody's just like, because there's, um, there's like so many Romero, it, it's not even just like a homage to Romero, it's just like copying what Romero has done and just like doing it badly. Because right? there's the zombies that are wandering around town and they are uh, always kind of drawn to something that they used to live, love or, or do in their previous lives. And, and there's people going around going, Bluetooth. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wi Fi. It's like, oh yeah, we get it. It's like uh PlayStation. Um it's uh, well, like you don't that's that's old. That's old nobody needs to say that anymore. We've heard that comment so many times. And then it really doesn't even go anywhere. It do, it doesn't land what it's tr trying to say. And if it is that it's making just fun of that kind of thing, it sort of makes sense, but that really doesn't come through from the film at all. Um, I think that it's making way more political overtones than these sort of social overtones. I mean, you have the guy's hat, like Steve Buscemi, he's a racist, yeah. but it says make America white again. It doesn't say make America great again. And it's a little bit about, the, every time I feel like, uh, you know, Bill Murray and um, Adam Driver were in the car saying, oh, it's going to end up bad. It's going to end up bad. I, I felt like that was a lot of Americans like right <laughs> at the the Trump winning, you know, and thinking this is just a zombie apocalypse a bit. For me, I see that sort of as a more of political undertones in a certain ways, as well as this, oh, I'm captivated by my cell phone and I'm captivated about this. Also, look at where it's taking place. I mean, um, it's, you know, Centerville, America, and it's kind of talking about perhaps we've all gone asleep a bit, you know, for, and, and if we don't stand up and you have these kind of, you know, at the end samurai, like, you know, policemen who, who do that. So in that sense, I thought that was interesting and, 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 you know, an interesting take on the zombie movie. I happen to not be a zombie um, movie like expert, so I don't know what it's mimicking or not, um, but I did find its dryness to be quite, amusing sometimes and sometimes I was just laughing in the silence and bit and they let it sort of it hit and and I I, I enjoyed it more than than I thought I would it, I mean it definitely has its moments um like in particular and again this isn't really any sort of spoiler because this happened I, I won't go into any other instances later in the film but very early on you know, Adam Driver sitting in the car and he says this is going to end badly this is going to end badly and basically Bill Bill Murray sort of like then starts questioning him on it, you know, why? What do you mean by that, right? Which is really very funny. In terms of how meta it is, it sets its stall out very early on that one because it opens with this song, which I tried to do a bit of rudimentary Googling before we came on air here, and I, I, I was unable to determine whether it was a song that already existed or if it was recorded for the film. But there is a song called The Dead Don't Die, right, which plays over the opening credits, 
And as we join the two of them cruising around in their police cruiser, it's what's on the radio, right? And, but, and you know, it's more or less the opening scene. Bill Murray says, oh, why do I find this so familiar? To which Adam Driver responds, oh, it's the theme song. Oh, it was playing earlier, that's why it's familiar. And it's just like, okay, I mean, that's quite amusing. And it does a couple of other things throughout the film that I won't give away, where it does similar things. And at first it's quite amusing, but it's more, as the film went on, I'm not really sure what the purpose of it was. I didn't actually think that worked for me very well. because no, I don't think it, it worked at all. And, mm. and that really bothered me because I, you know, I was involved in this zombie apocalypse world and in you know and these characters and these little cameos and then they, it just sort of shifted into this you know we're in a film moment and I didn't think that was funny and I didn't so that actually really turned me off and um, I think some directors can do it really well I think we talked about that in uh, the in the past with the um, with a guy who did Vice uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Adam and the same yeah. similar sort of kind of trying to tr trick maneuver that you're you know like ending a film or whatnot and and it just didn't it, it didn't it didn't work for me I, I, I agree. I mean, I think because, you know, we've, we've spoken about it before like Adam McIntyre and like, like winking to the process, but here it kind of felt like, okay, we know this is ridiculous. We can't quite sell this. Let's just remind everybody it's a film and it'll be a bit funny and we'll move on. It didn't really, I, I think it either needed to lean more into that and do more of that and make it like really very meta and self-referencing. Or it needed to cut it out completely. Because I think what, what they were trying to do with the film, if they'd got rid of those bits, I think it still would have worked as well. It might even have worked a little bit better, to be perfectly honest. So th that, bit, I, that bit, I agree with you. That didn't work for me at all. The rest of it, I think it could have been better. I, I would still say see it. I mean, I had fun with it. There's plenty of good jokes, but it just didn't quite come together for me. I found myself chuckling. I had fun with it. Some of the jokes were funny, but I caught to the end of the film and I was thinking, I don't really know what the point of any of this is. Like, people have done social commentary through zombie films. They've done social commentary and humour through horror films. This has all been done before, and this just felt like a slightly weak version of stuff that had gone before, including Jim Jarmusch's own work, really, to be perfectly honest. So I'm not really sure what boxes it hit for me. It's not bad, but it's not particularly good either, to be honest. Yeah, and if, like Amanda, you said something about the political commentary, I think, yeah, but I think it's too late to the game. Uh, it's, it's even referring to the Selena Gomez group as hipsters. That's definitely not hipsters. Like it, it's like the filmmaker doesn't know what, it's, what he's talking about. And then the, uh, I know it's the funny part that the film is trying to make is it's funny, it seems like it's funny because these people are famous. So it's almost like a Wes Anderson film where like, oh, now there's, you know, Owen Wilson is playing this character, you know. Uh, it's funny because it's Owen Wilson. Oh my God, Bill Murray's doing it again. That kind of stuff. Because it's, it's, it's riddled with famous people. And that goes nowhere. Yeah. Uh, th uh, to me, the whole film feels a bit like a circle jerk. So a lot of people who know <laughs> each other get together and they decide to do something funny. And it f just really lands flash. Like, it seems a bit amateurish. It's like the Star Wars joke that's in towards the end of the film. Like, God, really? Did you, need did you really need to push it through like that? Wow. As the token American in the group here, I think <laughs> maybe, and I, I think we were talking about this with um, Chris from... Uh, the short comedy festival, I think sometimes maybe comedy is different and maybe it, it doesn't translate. And I do think the powerful in bit about this film, it's not the funniest film, it's a subdued humor. 
And um, I actually looked it up while we were talking. I don't think the Jim Jarmusch was trying to make political overtones, even though it sort of comes across that way, I think, with people who have are currently living under that administration. It does feel a bit like a zombie apocalypse. But I think that that whole cast of having Serena Gomez in there for like a five-minute clip for Rosie Perez in that spot is... It's a take on a cast ensemble, like, you know, film, and, and that's what he was doing, and I, I thought it was amusing, you know, it, did, it didn't, it wasn't the best film I've ever seen, but I think sometimes we come into these wanting this film to be 150% when, you know, I, I think it, I think I'll probably watch that film, ag- you know, again, and, and enjoy it, you know, and, and let's see something more about it, and and um, you know, it was it, it was it it was fun. That's what it was. We well, see the thing you, you say. I, I don't necessarily disagree with anything you've said there. And the I, I still had fun with this film. It's more. I, I did feel like it petered out a little bit. Now that's probably a little bit what they were wanting to communicate with the story and the tone, right? It, you know, there there is no catharsis here. There is no moment where kind of it, it comes together but as a result it does make it quite an unsatisfying thing to end up watching it's still funny i still had fun with it i think unlike annie i i like you know the the star wars joke this made like yeah you know it kind of landed with me but i found myself chuckling and thinking okay that had some good moments rather than really finding it properly funny and then coming out of it thinking yeah that spoke to me it was more, I felt like somebody was trying to tell me something, but then they kind of, I mean, this is probably rather ironic because I'm probably doing this right now, right? But they were trying to tell me something, but they ended up garbling their words. It's all there. I enjoyed bits of it. I get the point. I just didn't really feel like I'd got anything out of it come the end. Yeah, and it didn't really have an ending at all. It seems like it didn't, they didn't know. Like, I, I don't hate films that don't have endings. It's not, I just don't like films that don't know how to end the film. And it seemed it seems like one of those films that they were kind of like, well, how do we pull the story together? How do we finish? It's like, oh, well, just have like a UFO come in and oh, <laughs> so funny, amazing idea. Yeah, let's put that in. Yeah, and then the whole storyline with the kids. What was the point of that? Anyone? I've been trying to get the mic. Um, <laughs> it did have an ending. Um, the one, uh, I it did have an ending. They <laughs> sorry, uh, take, we'll take it out. <laughs> To, to, to be fair, like Adam it, Driver does spend the first half hour in the film saying this is not going to end it's well. It's not going so. to end well. <laughs> yeah. um, but <laughs> it did. It just ended more abruptly, perhaps than you know than a general sort of narrative arc. Maybe one of the things that I did enjoy about it, but I really did find that Bill Murray drove had you know had drove the film in a lot of ways. I thought Adam Driver was really good. I love Chloe Sevigny, so I think. Something about the way you know he carried those lines, or his sen- his own sense of humor, just maybe sort of made made me think about that. I've seen other films, obviously, with Jim Jarmusch and Bill, Bill Murray, so it was an interesting sort of thing to see him come back in one of his films. And um, and I thought, and and I, I enjoyed his his performance. Um, I, I don't know, maybe it's just Scottish accent bias here, right? But I did enjoy Tilda, Tilda Swinton's character, right? I had a lot of fun with that. You know, she plays this uh, mortician or you know pathologist who runs a local funeral home. Basically, she you know she's a very oddball character, and she has a katana, and she's you know. It's almost like if you took some sort of like quirky Scottish character and mi- mixed her with Michonne from The Walking Dead or something, and you'd end up with Tilda Swinton's character here. 
I think the stuff they did with her was very interesting. I think some of the stuff that they did um, with the zombies was actually quite interesting as well. Yeah, I, I enjoyed the zombie that wanted Chardonnay. That was my <laughs> <laughs> only one that I liked. Which I recognise. I, I, I wonder if the actress is getting typecast, because I'm pretty sure it's the, um, it's the, the landlady from uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Yeah, I think I recognise it. No, the, the cast were good. The cast were great. Like I even did, like I enjoyed uh, Tom Waits. I thought Bill Murray was excellent. The standouts for me were, I think, um, I mean, Tilda Swinton gets a lot of time as this very eccentric character, right? So she is very memorable, and I, I enjoyed that performance. I thought Adam Driver was excellent. I mean, for all that my issues with like a couple of the bits of humour, I thought he delivered it superbly. Like he got a lot of laughs out of me in this film. So. There's plenty going for it. There is plenty going for it, but I think the cast kind of carries the script a little bit. I think if they had less gifted performers in those roles, it wouldn't land as well. Absolutely, and maybe why I liked it was because there it, it let it let the actors breathe and sort of do their thing, and they were good enough to do it, in my opinion, you know? And so it would have just fallen really short if you had hadn't had that those people um and and so yeah i i i liked it yeah i don't think it would have ever been made if it wasn't for those actors i think it is a film made for them by jim jamush with them so with a totally different cast i don't think it would have ever happened or like totally nobody's yeah, well, I mean, like that, I, I think that they're all wanting to be in a Jim Jarmusch film, basically. Yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah. he caught them up, going like, "How about we make a zombie film?" Yeah, yeah, let's go for it. It's definitely not like um, his his vampire film, though. Only lovers left alive, which, no. <laughs> yeah. which okay, some people really love and some some don't. But that that you know, it, it is interesting, like to see him do a different kind of you know film I, as I, well. It's maybe just I, I don't know. It's maybe just British bias or something. It's more just when you've got a. a, a what's essentially a comedy film centered around zombies like i'm sorry i can't i find it hard to see past Shaun of the dead like i realized that Shaun of the dead was like what 15 years ago now and like you know in terms of anything it was saying on the side was very different but it's just if you're going to go for an overtly comedy focused zombie film then you've got to land because in terms of like recent history that's the touchstone that was in my view excellent and this one it just it didn't it didn't have seem to have as clear a sense of purpose about why it was going for the approach it was and i think that's maybe why it didn't come together as well for me but as i say the cast carried it so it's, it's still enjoyable but yeah well speaking of good cast and bill murray i just wanted to make a quick plug for uh our friends at matchbox cine club um they are they have a, a event later on in in august called weird weekend and they are doing the scottish premiere of an unreleased bill murray sci-fi comedy from 1984 that they found called nothing lasts forever on 35 millimeter so if you're a bill murray fan you enjoyed the dead don't die or just any bill murray film you might want to check that one out <laughs> Next up, uh, we are going to review Agnes Varda's latest film, uh, Varda by Agnes. J'ai fait des films très très différents dans ma vie, et donc il faut que je vous dise qu'est-ce que c'est qui m'a mené à faire ce travail pendant tant d'années. 
Revenons un peu en arrière. Quant au début d'un film, c'est parfois la vie qui l'impose. And Annie, why don't you tell us a little bit about that film? Right, so uh, it is the latest and the last film by Agnes Varda, and it basically just brings together her whole career. So she sits down in front of different audiences, sometimes also just in front of the camera, and speaks about her career and the film she's made, and speaks a lot about her visual art as well, that's not as well known as, um, as the films. And it's all in French, and she's a lovely, plump, old lady, um, like she says herself. Um, and occasionally she brings a guest with her as well, but it's always in slightly interesting setting. Um, it's visual, uh, also not just in a way that it shows clips from the films, but sometimes they're actually either on set or, or going on on a, a, a dolly or something like that. Um, it's interesting if you are a Varda fan. It's, it's a must if you're a Varda fan. Um, if you're not too familiar with Varda, uh, it might be a bit odd for you to watch because you don't really know what she's talking about necessarily. But it is, it's, it's a good depiction of her cinematic vision. So it, it, it is a joy to watch. It's interesting. But at the same time, it is like a self-biopic a bit. So it's not... It's it's not super super entertaining, I'd say. So, I so my, my familiarity with Agnes Varda's work is not as good as I would like it to be. Um, so I've seen Vagabond, I've seen One Sings the Other Doesn't, and that is, to be honest, that's it. So I've come to this film as somebody who um, likes what I've seen, but I don't have an extensive viewing history with her. Now. I have to be honest, I wasn't that into this. I mean, it did play a little... Uh, so much of it is uh, Agnes Varda at what are obviously Q&A sessions or uh, film talks, and then it's interspersed a little bit with her recreating uh, shots from her films or explaining how they filmed it, right? So th there's a, a segment with Sandrine Bonaire talking about Vagabond, which I was quite... You know, and she has the capacity to be self-critical in this film. Um, you know, despite the fact it is her film and it's about her career, she, she doesn't shy away from being, you know, self-deprecating or even critical about her process. And that conversation is one. They have a conversation about um, Sandri Bonaire getting blisters on her hand and basically how indifferent and quite cold Agnes Varda was about it at the time. And, you know, she criticises herself for that there. They talk about the lack of commercial success that a couple of her films have, and she's quite self-deprecating about it. It's quite interesting in those moments, but in the other bits, particularly the Q&A sessions, I have to be honest, it plays like a two-hour TED talk. Um, and there is, in fact, a year before the film came out, there is a TED talk that Agnes Varda did which covers some of the same ground. Um, you know, so she has a segment where she talks about not wanting to um, fake the passage of time, right? Filming the everything, every step that one of her characters took across a courtyard and through a passageway and all the rest of it. That is also in the TED Talk. Now, it's a case of if you've not seen every single one of these things and you have an interest in how they've been made, I question how... how engaging or even useful this film is and I've seen a few reviews that actually d don't say the same thing as Annie just did where they said oh you know you'll be very into it if you've uh, seen much of her work 
um, and it's a good primer for people who haven't. I, I have to disagree. I have to disagree with that. I don't think that that is an ac accurate way to, to portray it. So whilst she is a wonderful filmmaker, and I think, and we'll come back to this, I think there are bits of that that it does get across. Um, and I think there are things there which it is good for. I don't think this is... I, I honestly don't think this is a good introduction to Agnes Varda. Watch one of her actual films, I think, personally. Um, well, I disagree with both of you. Um, and I, I did see this film a bit ago at the Berlin Alley, and I specifically made sure that I got to Berlin just to see it because I'm a m massive Agnes Varda fan. So I, in one way, can't say, you know, oh, I wasn't aware of Agnes Varda's work or, you know, you know, Clived from 5 to 7 is by far one of the films that brought me into wanting to be a filmmaker. Um, but I don't think that uh, I was sitting next to a person who ha didn't know very much of Varda's work and I think quite enjoyed it and quite saw uh, the not only the personality of, of the filmmaker come through, but sort of was given a, like a full sort of understanding of how how work, you know, how her work happened throughout the years. Secondly, I also learned something about it where I hadn't really known about her sort of artistic work and how her art um, sort of I everything that she thinks about kind of is like reflected and is sort of repurposed and recycled and, and some of those things like, you know, we were um, in class studying the, the Gleaners and I, uh, like these things like were translated into her later work and then Finally, in you know Faces Places, which we showed a couple months ago, um, you kind of can see these themes going throughout her her stuff. So I think the fact that we were given that opportunity um, to see such a masterful filmmaker talk about that is priceless. And so for me, it was a priceless film that I'm I was actually in tears um, about. And this was way before, you know, not way before, but a month or so before she passed away. Um, but that being said, I do think it was like a master class. It was a little bit of, you know, like it wasn't, it wasn't faces places, you know. Um, uh, but what it did also show is that even with a master class and a TED Talk, which if it was, uh, you know, it programmed in that way, um, she does, a w she has, has this ability to make things effortless and whimsical and that's what a good director is, where we were talking about, you know, the Jim Jarmusch sort of little, like, line in there to kind of pull you out of the film. And frankly, Agnes Varda created that. And, uh, the w you know, her films her originally were the ones that, you know, the French New Wave were inspired by that, like, were able to, to kind of seamlessly edit, you know, into uh, what is a film. And I think that is priceless for anyone who wants to you know like study film history um to be able to see that from from her 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 voice i think one thing it is definitely good for um is i have had a problem recently and, and i say i say this for somebody who, who doesn't have that history with agnes varda but is it is a fan of the work i've seen and one thing i do have an issue is this kind of like slight memification of her that's gone on recent years I've noticed you know because she you know she's a very you know well certainly you know in recent years I mean obviously she's not always been elderly but you know she's she she was rather an elderly French woman who liked cats and she had kind of a two-tone bob and looked quite quirky and she was very internet memeable right and I think something that got lost in that a little bit is how 
fiercely an intelligent filmmaker she was. So whilst I have a bit of an issue with the staging of this film, and I don't think it's necessarily the most captivating, I think it is good to hear directly from her. And it is interesting. I do think you're going to get a lot more out of it if you watch a lot of her work. So, I mean, there is one section where she talks about how she created uh, a particular tracking shot in Vagabond, which I find fascinating because when I watched the film, it really stood out to me. And then hearing her talk about it and, you know, why that approach was taken is quite something. And talking about kind of the themes that go into her work, it is interesting. It's more just a case of I'm not really sure... I'm not really sure how much of it needed to be in this as a documentary film made by her. Because... In terms of getting across her concerns as a filmmaker and how she was approaching things, or, or more accurately, how it then came out in the films, her films do the talking. And this, I feel, was maybe just a little bit too ponderous. Um, it doesn't, and this is what I, I, I find myself saying, this is not to say it doesn't have value. It does, it really does. In particular, I think the, the part that I found the most interesting was, as I think both of you said, the stuff around about her, at, her other visual artistry, like the art installations that she worked on, things like that. That I found interesting, because that's not something I, I knew about. The rest of it, it was a little bit like an extended masterclass, which is fine, there's a place for that, I just don't think it's as a two-hour film at a film festival. That's me. Yeah, I agree what you say about the if you want this is definitely not the first water you should watch because if this is the first water you watch, you're not gonna necessarily like the rest of her stuff. It's it's watch you should watch one of her films first to kind of get into that mindset into watching this film. Yeah, and I would argue you should probably watch um Cleo from five to seven. It's one of the most brilliant films I've ever seen. But see, I don't think this film was ever I mean it almost immediately went onto French television. So I think there was a bit of this, which was, you know, it, it was at the Berlin Alley because it was Agnes Varda and because, you know, because she she's a legend. And I think if there was a documentary about other legends, they would have been at Cannes or, or, or Berlin Alley as well. Um, and yet we know we are, I think we are, sh you know, I'm glad that they're showing it on, in, in cinemas because, you know, it, it's well-deserved to be. Um, but maybe even some other films that we'll talk about later will much more well-deserved to be. But I think that in the end, one of the things that I gets to me is that, and I constantly have this battle, and maybe you guys can agree or disagree with me on this, is that a filmmaker goes through so many different processes and makes so many different films. You see Jim Jarmusch, it might not be the his, you know, his opus and his, you know, but it was an okay, good film. And, you know, he, she just came off of Faces Places and then made this film that sort of was like reflective on her life and how, you know, and how it had an arc and, and one of the things and how her collaborative process works because she just spent, you know, making this great film with JR about collaboration. And I think it really was a nice anecdote to like, the other work that she did and you know it, it it's fine sometimes I, I I'd rather see filmmakers make more films and I, I I I make this argument all the time with this like Paul Thomas Anderson like I only make seven films or like even Tarantino I'm only going to make 10 films in my life where you know like you know the Woody Allens of the world will make 150 and some will be really bad, you know, and some will be better than others. And, and so I think even Agnes Varda does feel in that sort of experimental kind of filmmaker where she would try anything when she feels like it. And, and, you know, that's, that's what's fun about her. 
It's interesting to hear you you talk about your reaction to it at Berlinale, which which was before she passed away, right? Yeah, because a lot of people, a lot of people, I think, have seen this after she passed away, and I, I you know, I mean, I'm, gonna, I'm probably going to get tarred and feathered in the street for saying this. I think some of the people who've seen it after that, I think they're reviewing the filmmaker and her legacy more than this film. And as I say, it's not to say that I think this is a bad film. I just don't think it was the most um, need-to-see film. Like it, it, It's like I say, if somebody was thinking about seeing this, I would basically say to them, no, don't bother, go and watch an Agnes Varda film you've not seen. Right? The, the, off, if, somebody, if I could go back in time and somebody gave me the option of watching this or watching Cleo from 5 to 7, I'd choose Cleo from 5 to 7. Because... I've come off the back of it thinking I probably should have watched more Agnes Varda films, not actually really thinking that this film itself was up to much. And that's not me saying that it's a bad film, because I I enjoy the bits where she inserted herself into it and she kind of took you through her process. It does have its moments. It's just there are long stretches where that's not what is happening. I think if it had been shorter with more of that sort of stuff in it, then I think this, this individual film... I would have got got more out of, but it's more a case of I'm more inclined to tell people go and dig through her back catalogue than actually really going into this film. Oh yeah, and, and don't get me wrong, I think this so the Varda by Agnes. If you're going to tell me I need to sit down and watch any filmmaker talk for their two hours about their own work. I'm far more inclined to make it Agnes Varda than a Jim Jarmusch or a Quentin Tarantino because I think she's a more interesting person. I think she's got... she's Certainly at the time she tackled them as well, she's done more interesting things. So if you tell me I have to sit and listen to any of these people talk for two hours in, you know, Q&A sessions, I'll take her. Like, Yeah, and I think whereby with some other directors they could do a TED Talk... I think Agnes Varda is so ingrained in the, the history and the building of the cinema. So she's she's done so much for cinema that her even her TED talk needs to be a film and it needs to be seen in a cinematic setting. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. It, it, it's also because it's a slightly different perspective as well. In the sense, you know, because I mean, she was there with the whole French New Wave thing, but she kind of stands apart from your 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 Goddards because of the stuff she was trying to tackle. Yeah. So that's what I mean in terms of she's an interesting person to listen to because what she has tried to tackle and when she did it, like one sings the other doesn't is basically saying the films that I've seen, that's the one that's coming to mind for me. And the, the stuff that that tries to approach and the time it did it at, it, th- that is very interesting to me. So th- those aspects of it, listening to her talk about that, it is interesting. So as I say, if I'm going to listen to anybody do this, I'd prefer it with somebody like Agnes Varda it's just not, I'm not going to lie, it doesn't grip me as a film in its own right. Yeah, and as I was saying, I think it just, I mean, she she does stand apart from the other French New Wave directors because she inspired the other French New Wave directors. She was before them. Sometimes they call her the godmother or the grandmother of it, but then, you know, she was sort of their contemporaries, so it was just that she was doing it before them. And also, being able to kind of see a filmmaker transition as we said into these art and and still be approachable is something that's also nice but which uh, you, you know when when you pick a ted talk person they've they've got to be somebody who you relate to and Godard could never do a ted talk no. you know he would never be able to and some of his work right now is very 
unapproachable. Even well, if could, it's well, still could, brilliant. You won't throw yourself out a window because it would be so dull, to be perfectly honest. But there you go. So our final film that we're going to review is David Fairhead's um, documentary Armstrong. Did I have anything to do with Neil being the first man on the moon? Yes, I did it. The media labeled my father as a recluse. Thank God social media didn't exist back then. There are things that he just couldn't say no to. So you want to talk about this, Annie? Oh, yes, please. So David <laughs> Fairhead, you know it's going to be good when I launch the mic. Um, David Fairhead is, uh, is known for documentaries such as uh, Spitfire and Missing Control. Known so for? <laughs> that's okay. what it says yeah, on right. IMDb. <laughs> so he's very much a, a type director, I think. So this is a film um, I was sort of surprised that we watched. Um, it's a biopic about Armstrong, surprisingly. Um, and like Amanda said, there's been a lot of films coming fr from, um, from the Apollo 11 for the celebration of the 50th anniversary of NASA faking the moon landings, <laughs> um, <laughs> including Apollo 11 and First Man. And this is, uh, but this one is, uh, it's, it's a very unproblematically portrayed character documentary of a man who is uh, a known hero. Um, it's very uncritical of him and of the whole program that he was in. It's making him uh, like uh, the best man ever to do anything <laughs> kind of person. Um, and it's not a great documentary. So I am surprised that it is has made its way into cinemas. And when I checked, I think it's only in few cinemas at the moment in Glasgow and, and somewhere else maybe. So uh, that's good. Um, but it's it's so uncritical about things. I, I find I find documentaries that don't say anything that just kind of glorify the subject to be really pointless. And this is uh, this is a case in point as well. Um, it's it's the whole story is so ingrained with the Western culture and media, and such so well known. It's so overtold. There's nothing new I think you can dig out of this character unless you actually go a bit under the skin. And this documentary really does not do that. It's just interviewing his friends, interviewing... To be honest, it does interview the wife, and the wife has a few things to say against him, which is good. But like, it's, it's still kind of... The filmmaker just picks mostly the the positive points of like how good of a father he was. And then towards the end, it's just like, well, he was never around, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but all the others are just like all these friends are just like oh my god it couldn't it couldn't have been anyone else but Armstrong um, I really it was really really boring and it was really bad filmmaking it was not cinematic it used some archive footage but I haven't seen Apollo 1 but I think Apollo 1 is much more interesting already than oh, this documentary yeah. is um, w with NASA digging out some studio footage from their backlockers. Um, and it repeats the same old story of a hero of America 
And uh, there was some points where it was speaking about the Russian version, like, you know, Russia made it first with Yuri Gagarin. And that's the story that I'm not sure if that's told, but that would be way more interesting than watching over and over again the same story of America making it first to the moon and the, the words of this is a small step for a man and big step for mankind. Everybody, babies know where that's from. Like, this is not a film that needed to be made. So I have a couple of issues with this film. Um, some of it is the stuff that it actually chooses to cover. The other part of it is the filmmaking. The filmmaking one is a little bit easier to to pick out, right? Because it, it, it's it's not the most exciting film in terms of what it chooses to do. It's all very much talking heads, uh, a bit of archive footage, and then there are these kind of like weird dramatized shots where kind of like you know they'll slowly pan in over a coffee table, which has two copies of the same magazine for some reason. But let's let's gloss over that bit and. But it, it's done a few things in really weird ways, right? So the archive footage, by nature of it being archive footage, is pretty much four to three ratio, right? It's quite square looking as, you know, because it was, you know, meant for TV broadcast. Then it's got interview segments, some of which are in, like, almost anamorphic widescreen, like a really wide. Some of them are in just kind of like standard 16 to 9 widescreen and then all of these dramatized things are super widescreen so it's constantly chopping and changing between different aspect ratios which is kind of i mean really it's kind of filmmaking 101 about how to pull your audience out of it is to be switching between this stuff constantly so there's that aspect of it the second part of it is also what it chooses to focus on and i I have to agree with annie that it's not very critical now that doesn't mean that it doesn't address topics where Neil Armstrong maybe doesn't come off quite as much as the all-American hero, right? It addresses the relationship with his children and his wife and a couple of other things, but that's all it does. It basically mentions them, and then it very quickly moves on. There are a lot of um, documentaries of people who do this sort of thing. It was something that I criticised. Marley was a film that came out a few years ago. It did a very similar thing, where it was basically almost kind of like it was very hagiographical in the way it approached it. Now, this doesn't quite go to that level, but it doesn't really engage with them. It also doesn't engage with things that could actually be a little bit more interesting, right? Because you might remember when First Man came out, there was this whole big um, hoo-ha from right-wing conservatives in the States about it not showing the, the, the scene where he puts the flag on the moon. And there's actually a very brief segment here where Harrison Ford, who is narrating this, which I think this is basically why it's got a release, right? Because Harrison Ford's narrating it. It goes through a section, he's narrating uh, Neil Armstrong's words, where he goes into, you know, there was a bit of discussion about what the flag should be, but and basically the people themselves involved didn't really have particularly strong feelings on it as to whether it should be an American one or a UN flag or something like that. Now, given the context in which this has this came out, I, I feel like it could have done more with that, but it doesn't. It goes for this just very standard, if I'm being very critical, made-for-TV approach. But even then, these technical limitations I've mentioned would kind of prevent it from having uh, that much impact. And quite a lot of the time, people say, he was a straight arrow. That's something that you hear quite a lot. He was a straight arrow. Well, I hate to say it, but unless you're bringing much imagination to the filmmaking making a documentary about a man who, which was a straight arrow, you end up with a pretty straight film. Um, 
So it's not to say it doesn't have its moments of interest, but it's a little bit shoddily made, if I'm being honest. And I feel like it focuses on the bits that were less interesting about his life and his opinions about the Apollo 11 mission and everything that followed. Um, I couldn't agree more with you two, which is very not common. I I thought um, there's there's only a few documentary films that I dislike more, and um, that (laughs) supersized me, and any Ken Burns film. Um, But this is like third on the list um and i just i thought they just that he just like phoned it in like i didn't learn anything i don't know much about neil armstrong but i didn't learn anything the song at the end made me like i thought i was at some sort of disney call to action like you know america is grand disney call to action well you know when you're like yeah love america or something like that and you know, I you know I did I, 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 I actually kind of found him boring, and I think I would have been interested in the Buzz Aldrin story because he probably had a little bit more fun in life or something, you know. Um, so, it really don't have anything else more to say other than uh, agree. And I wish I had seen Apollo Eleven. I wish I had seen some other sort of because there's some really amazing films, and this is an amazing story. Whether or not you know you're all-American ready for one step of mankind or whatever. It's an, it's an impressive, amazing feat that, like, I'm not super obsessed with space, but we know quite a few people who are, and it's like, it's... And we still don't even know if it happened. Yeah. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I think we, we've kind of drawn the short straw with the uh, the space documentaries here. By all accounts, Apollo 11, which was at Sundance... It was at Sundance and then Sundance London, is apparently excellent. So I'd say go see that. But if you want something that focuses more on Neil Armstrong as opposed to the mission itself. In some ways, I've seen both of them now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't actually go to this documentary. I'd actually go to First Man, right? Because, yes, a lot of it is dramatised, but some of the stuff that you can see, like his, his uh, now deceased, I believe, since this was filmed, wife uh, allude to, that Annie spoke about, you actually see that dramatised in the film, and you see that impact. You see the impact that the deaths of some of his colleagues in trying to develop the technology to make the mission possible, what effect that supposedly, admittedly, had on him. But it's a far more engaging film, and I think it actually, ironically, seems to end up saying more about Neil Armstrong as a person than this does. I mean, this is basically just a bunch of people sitting around saying, yeah, he was a great engineer. Well, yeah, of course he was a great engineer. He was chosen to pilot the moon mission. I mean, you don't choose people who are terrible. Like, we, we know this, guys. You know, it's, so in that respect, it doesn't really give you much insight, which is probably the point of making the film in the first place. So if it doesn't deliver it, then I don't really see any reason to see this above any of the other things which are coming up because of the 50th anniversary stuff. Yeah, I agree. And a funny thing about you mentioned the, the Buzz Aldrin story that would have been more interesting to see. This documentary built a lot of tension between the two characters. It was like when then there was also Mr. Buzz Aldrin and they knew from the first moment they were not going to be friends. And then that story just never went anywhere either. It was like, well, why? Like, what What was wrong with Buzz Aldrin? What happened? <laughs> and <laughs> that was like, oh, hey, they can't speak about that because like, that wouldn't be making him into a great hero. Or and something. again, that is something which I think is dealt better with in First Man because you got... Uh, I uh, forget the actor's name, but he's the guy who's in House of Cards playing Buzz Aldrin, and he does quite a good job of portraying 
the issues that people might have had with him, despite all his technical capabilities. So once again, like there's actually a fictional film, which I think is doing a better job than this documentary, which is a weird situation for it to be in, really. Yeah, and I, I am a, a fan of space stuff. Specifically, I've like read stories about the, the Challenger accidents and stuff like that. Um, so I found that kind of aspect of the film interesting, but interesting also what you said about the, the flag, when they were putting up the flag, because they were just engineers flying to the space and, and completing a mission and not really caring if there is going to be a US flag or a UN flag, they're just putting it up there. The whole thing that is worked on the behind the scenes, so that wasn't televised. So what happened, uh, maybe this is in his film about the mission control, you know, <laughs> you never know. But um, who made those deci decisions and like what was the actual human cost? And also the way that, because it, it was a race against the Russians. It's like how many risks were actually taken into for this to happen is much more interesting than then actually doing their job and flying up to the moon. Like how how was it built and how was how was this done and like th that would have been interesting to see. Um, but I also found it funny that it said something about the quote that or he he claimed to have said in a memoirs that, that he didn't know what he was going to say when he stepped down the ladder. And I really think that, like, I already believe in that that conspiracy of, of it being actually filmed in a studio, but I really don't think that he did not have that already written for him by a copywriter from NASA. <laughs> in some ways, what you said about this being the TV film, it would have been perfectly fine, you know, to be a, t a TV film. And, and I gathered that it was, there's a bunch of guys who he knew who were, you know, who were getting older and let's get them on tape to like recall this story and let's get Harrison Ford to like do the narration. Uh, also, know? Harrison Ford has never sounded so bored in his life, in my <laughs> opinion, in ways and I, I mean I, I mean I realize that, you know, if he's not jazzed about something, he's not necessarily the most emotive guy, right? Yeah. But honestly, I do so think he sounds pretty, pretty bored. Yeah. Um, no, but I mean then as you were saying, there were these inkling things like, oh, the race and you know, the 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 mission that happened before where where the guys you know had died and it sort of harkens back to that chernobyl there's, there's so much tension going on and there was so much that could have been pulled out but it was really just letting like i said phoned it in just letting these guys who knew him speak and tell their stories and you know it's a nice archive you know of their story but there's no the the filmmaker is not actually interrogating the story and like having a conversation about it, asking them more stuff about it, and also not framing the heads right. There's too much headroom in the shots. Well, uh, well, I mean, that goes back to that thing I said about, like, the different ratios. Like, I mean, yeah, these, get, these people are kind of, like, marooned off in the middle of the frame. Um, you know, in particular, like, cause it, it starts off with some, as I say, which are done in just kind of, like, normal widescreen, but then they interview some of the same people later, whereby they're then in the super widescreen. And then Armstrong's wife is framed a lot closer than everybody else. And it's just, it, it's one of these things. It, it, it just draws you out of the story that it's trying to tell. And I do think the later part of the film was more interesting. I think it picked up a bit. I think the stuff when they were dealing with um, how Neil Armstrong felt about the celebrity that followed the moon landing... Uh, what he worked out after, the fact that he was on the investigation committee for the Challenger disaster, all that stuff is quite interesting. And I think 
naturally because it happened later in his life it's then loaded into the back end of the film because it takes a very chronological approach right but by that point you've already kind of switched off from it a bit so it's already lost its audience there it needed some some inventiveness now whether that came from the visuals whether it comes from the order in which it looks at the events in uh, armstrong's life or it you know tried to take different thematic blocks or something i don't know um, and this is why I merely moan about films on the radio rather than make them. But the, it's more a case of when you have access to all these people and their direct lived experiences, I don't know how you come out with less insight than a fictional film. I, I, I honestly, I, I don't know how that happens. I'm not saying it needs to be dramatic and uplifting. You need to learn life lessons from it. But it was more it didn't feel like it had much insight. It felt it was people telling me stuff that had happened. It wasn't people telling me about Neil Armstrong, the man, which was the point of this. This is what's meant to set it apart from the very well-regarded Apollo 11. It's about the Apollo 11 mission. This is about Neil Armstrong. That's its difference in focus, and it doesn't, it doesn't get it. It doesn't nail it for me. Well, all this talk about um, you know, landing on the moon. Uh, I was just thinking about you know how how many films have been made about space and moons and whatnot, and wanted to know what your favorite um, films are. I mean, I I go back to the obvious. Um, I'm not that that interesting. I love Space Odyssey. You know, it's classic, and I love the uh, the the computer Hal. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I also really did like um, Highlight. I, I was one of the 40, like 3% um, that Annie <laughs> said who liked the film. Um, I think because it wasn't sort of like this spacey sort of science fiction film, it was, it was I thought, quite an, like a, a beautiful film. And, 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 and I also kind of was captivated by the story. And it also made me sort of feel uh, like I, a sense of disbelief, which is hard for me to... I still don't understand how people survive up there. You know, even watching Armstrong, I'm like, how how did he make it? And you know, I wouldn't want to go up there myself. But how about you guys? So I think um, I mean, there's made. So I'm a bit of a I'm a bit of a sucker for sci-fi films, and obviously, space is something which goes through a lot of sci-fi films, like 2001 being the prime example. So a lot of films I I like have space as an element. I think if I was going to pick one that maybe I think a lot of people know, but it's maybe not quite in the sort of like the pop culture canon in the same way is Silent Running which is directed by Douglas Trumbull who did the special effects for 2001 A Space Odyssey and what's quite interesting about it is first of all it's a really good film uh, but it's also quite prescient in a lot of ways it's got an environmental angle and we're going back to I forget when it was made but I think it it was certainly mid-70s at the at the latest I think um and it's got a fantastic central performance by Bruce Dern. It's got a lot of themes which are really quite influential. The special effects, if you've seen 2001, obviously you'll have seen his work. But also it's very hard to then not see that influence elsewhere, even things like miniature shots from Star Wars, miniature shots from sci-fi television programs and all that sort of thing. It's very hard to miss it, and you can see how influential it actually ended up being. But on top of that, it is also... A really good film so you're going to go back in time i would say that uh, more recent ones i really enjoyed moon uh duncan jones's first film uh, i would say his films have been on a kind of exponential decrease in quality since then but that one is is really good so i would take those so you want one from 
earlier on and one from more recent, I'd go for go for those two, I think. Yeah, <coughs> I like space stuff. So the stuff I watch is something like YouTube videos and I read about space and space travel and stuff like that. Um, but that also stems from, like Amanda said, the kind of fear of unknown. I would never, ever, ever go to space. And I'm like fascinated about cra these so shuttle crashes and stuff like that. Um, but in terms of space films, I actually can't think of anything else but the Space Odyssey. Um, I, I'm afraid of aliens. Um, <laughs> so I tend to not like any alien films. I haven't seen the alien films either, although I know it's not really about aliens, but you know, I just don't like aliens on my screen. So, um, but the only thing I can think about right now off my head is not a film, but a, a TV series called Futurama. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I know it's not really we're not talking about the same thing here but it is it good I news <laughs> everyone <laughs> <laughs> so with Fujirama I, I find it funny and I find the way that it, it handles the idea of future and, uh, and space travel in that kind of ironic and, and sarcastic way to be kind of realistic at least I hope so, so Like it's not going to be very serious in the future it's going to be a very mundane thing to go to space and a very mundane thing to just like live on another planet maybe um and in a way even though it is is a fictional piece and it's a comedy it says something about the future of humankind that better than some some films do i think <laughs> So I'm here with Chris Aitken, director of Shortcom Film Festival, of which Cinetopia is collaborating with on their industry day and networking events. Chris, welcome to Cinetopia's podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, so tell me a little bit about the history of the Shortcom Film Festival. Okay, so it started when I was studying my MA in screenwriting in Salford. About maybe 2013, I think. I should really actually learn the history <laughs> when I started doing things. But um, So it kind of came about because some of the people that I studied with um, were various kind of filmmakers in their own right. One was a kind of director, cameraman. One was a uh, actor and I was very much don't want to be behind, I don't want to be in front of the screen, so I was a writer. So did a funny little sketch. Um, when I say funny, it got a laugh from people, so it, I think it was funny. Um, and did a thing in Salford of Manchester, um, a little film night. Um, I've, the names escaped me right at the minute, but it was a nice kind of like lot of kind of local filmmakers amateur filmmakers that came in you just had your film on a dvd no one knew what was going to get played and uh, it was in the place called deaf institute in manchester and nice big kind of screen uh, nice little lovely atmosphere and my film played it was nice uh got a laugh and then some of the other films that played it was a kind of mix of genres um so it was a weird kind of it was I mean a great environment but in terms of just seeing how the films played out and just in terms of the tone etc it just didn't kind of fit uh, for me anyway so and then like with this kind of film um, that we had so the next thing is it's like well what do I do with it um, and I mean kind of the obvious answer is it goes on the internet but then you don't really know who's watching it and how they're kind of reacting I mean with YouTube yes there's a like 
button and a thumbs down button, but you don't know quite where people are kind of either laughing at the moment, what bits they might appreciate. Um, and so my whole thing was that I think um, I didn't know any kind of film festivals that kind of did comedy. So I kind of started my own little program. Uh, and I can't, I think, yeah, short com, the name just came from short film comedy. Uh, I thought it was a good kind of like bridging of the two words. It turns out that uh, it also is <laughs> abbreviated, it's short for short communications, which a lot of uh, companies in Hong Kong went to buy the website of me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I didn't realize I kind of struck gold with the name, but <laughs> <laughs> I should have sold it, but I've kept it. Um, but yeah, I then I, th I think I put a post on shooting people, uh, calling for um, short comedy films, and I got a great response. Uh, lots of kind of like a lot strong kind of films, and I managed to put a package together, a program together, rather, and screened at the Frog and Bucket Comedy Club in Manchester. And yeah, it went well and just decided to kind of carry on from there uh just kind of got like increasingly kind of bigger uh didn't particularly have a home for it um i so i think i came back to edinburgh to kind of live and and i kind of screened it in edinburgh now and again screened it in london at the pleasance theater uh and then yeah it's just kind of grown from there and I've kind of come to understand a little bit more how film festivals work. Uh, and I just had to like learn a lot of skills in terms of basically doing everything that uh, makes a film festival. Uh, and then in terms of like branding, marketing, uh, engaging with filmmakers and talent uh, and venue owners, etc. So yeah, it just kind of, it grew interest. And there was a big demand as well for, um, people who had comedy films and wanted to be in a kind of comedy film festival because some people said to me as well like I experienced is that they would put their film in a film festival and the film would just feel out of place or would get lost um, just because it wasn't it just didn't marry with the programs that they were in and also what I've always kind of wanted to be is that my remit is that the films um, the most important thing is that they're funny and that they make people laugh so you, there's a big mix of kind of like levels of production so some are quite amateur um, just done on a kind of DSLR and then some of them are kind of like got a big budget as well so there's a good mix and it's just nice to kind of have them all packaged. Great and I was going to ask you touched a little bit on it um, but why why comedy uh, you, you you do write for comedy right now right is that that's yeah in terms of my default, in terms of writing screenplays and writing stories, but I find comedy really easy. Um, writing drama is quite hard. It, I think if you probably ask drama writers, they probably find writing comedy hard. So I've just kind of got my brains that way around. Um, and I see, I can just see comedy everywhere. And I mean, I love the genre as well. I kind of was brought up in it. There was a lot of great sitcoms and uh, sketch shows uh, when I was growing up. Um, I, I mean, I've got certain opinions about how comedy is now. Um, so I think intuitively, I'm that's kind of where my brain is geared towards writing-wise. Um, I also think I'm a good judge of comedy. 
uh, I just have good instincts for it and I think that's kind of been received well by the people that kind of well audiences particularly in terms of that have come to see Shortcom and uh, and I, they've kind of laughed where I expect them to laugh so I kind of feel validated by my sense of judgment so, so who are some of your um, your comedy icons then um, in terms of uh, as writers, performers, actors, or perhaps writers, perhaps directors, yeah. perhaps you know sitcoms that you've, like you said, you really yeah. sort of admire. Um, I mean Charlie Kaufman is my kind of, in terms of myself as a writer, that's who I can what uh, be my version of, kind of Charlie Kaufman, uh, which is a <laughs> massive, uh, yeah leap because yeah he's pretty much the. I mean, he's very much his own brand. Yeah, he's, he's somewhat, maybe exception to Woody Allen, but who wants to mention him now? Um, but Charlie Kaufman, he's the first kind of screenwriter where it's the, his name, as you could say Sorkin as well, but Kaufman's is the most kind of prominent name on the films that he does, um, probably more so than the directors, which is very unheard of in kind of just the film landscape. Uh, so him... Um, Sitcom comedy wise, I mean, Father Ted was uh, probably st maybe still is one of my favorite sitcoms. Um, so that's Grim Linehan and Arthur Matthews. Um, and then a uh, lot sketch shows like The Fast Show. I loved um, I also grew up with um, Red Dwarf, was a big fan of uh, Reeves and Mortimer, uh, which is kind of off kilter. Um, Odd, um, yeah, odd beats, just nonsense, daft. Uh, I'm quite, I quite like dark, visceral stuff as well. So I love the thick of it, and Amanda kind of iron it. She's just brutal dialogue. Um, so, but in terms of, I kind of got a wide taste in comedy. Mm -hmm. um, we know we both don't agree on Seinfeld. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I still, I, I mean, I asked about, is that when does Seinfeld get good? Right. And somebody so. said the third series, and and then there used to be a rule with kind of sitcoms. I mean, America is different, and then Britain, the sitcom, kind of the rule of like how a sitcom becomes popular was that it used to, they used to give it free series before um, somebody people got used to the characters, um, and because it's knowing and liking the characters, it really makes what is a good sitcom. Yeah. Um, and so the rule was that. Uh, yeah, you get free series, but in America, you obviously, you have I think what twelve to twenty-two episodes per mm -hmm. per, and um, yeah, <laughs> when people tell me it's like oh, it gets good in season three, and I'm like, I'm not watching forty-four episodes of something to just not like <laughs> before I go. Okay, this is fine. Fair enough. Yeah. And and there's a kind of I have a slightly brutal stance in terms of so as a writer, like the kind of general rule is that when you submit a script to someplace that. Um, you get, they say, 10 pages, which is 10 minutes on screen. Uh, I think the reality is that you probably get judged on the first page. But so my mentality as well is that when I'm watching something, if I don't engage with it, if I don't find anything about it in the first 10 minutes, uh, then I probably might stop watching because um, I feel like, well, that's you get the same rules as that I get. So <coughs> usually... I mean, I gave Seinfeld more than 10 minutes, but... <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Um, so, 
so Edinburgh, um, you're bringing Shortcom back up here, correct? Yeah. And in August, which obviously is comedies, the central yeah. comedy. But why do you, wh what do you see with this sort of fitting within the festival sort of schedule or, you know, things like that? Like, how do you think it, why did you choose this? Um, I mean, it's a... I mean, it's a somewhat excellent time in terms of like, I mean, you've got massive visiting audiences from around the world that um, not always here for comedy, but yeah, there's a, like a massive influx of uh, people that love comedy. So there's the audience thing. There's also a lot of talent, um, various kinds, and there's a lot of kind of industry um, people going around as well. So kind of makes perfect sense I mean, to kind of have it. I mean, the two kind of drawbacks is, is that you're in competition with lots of kind of performers, uh, different festivals happening. Um, accommodation is also um, quite toxic at the minute in terms of mm -hmm. just how expensive it is to get here. Um, so those are two things that I have to fight against. Um, but I think for all the kind of positives that are here, and it makes sense. I mean, the Edinburgh Film Festival used to be on June during August and I think it lost a lot of kudos as soon as it as it left um, August as well I also know that people would come visit Edinburgh not just for the Fringe Festival International Festival but the Film Festival as well mm. and so and because the film kind of left I think it, there was well I know that record numbers of people are coming but I kind of feel like there's certain people that are not coming anymore right because the film festival's not here. So yeah. So I kind of want to fill that gap a little bit, but I'm very aware that I'm a certain genre of film, and so that is its own niche as well. Um, and, uh, and also my kind of goals and aims with the festival is that so ideally from next year, branch out into feature films and TV pilots, as well as having the shorts program. So we kind of expand the festival. Uh, and Edinburgh is such a kind of like internationally renowned city, um, and again, it massively makes sense to kind of have it here. Uh, Lazily, I'm from Edinburgh, yeah. <laughs> so I should be able to get free accommodation for myself <laughs> and have it. Yeah, so I mean, like Edinburgh is massively spoiled for choice in terms of like not always all year round, but always has something going on, like mm -hmm. some sort of big festival as well. Um, and it, I mean, it's kind of got the infrastructure for it as well. Um, and yeah, I just feel like there's a lot of reasons to yeah, kind of no, have it, it totally, and do it. It totally does make sense. And where, tell me a little bit about what the plans are this year. So you have an event on the 12th, you have an event on the 15th, and, and who, you know, wh who's going to go to what, you know? Uh, okay, so yeah, they're somewhat s separate. In terms of the 12th, it's the screening at the Cameo Cinema. Um, which is my favorite cinema in Edinburgh, and it just kind of fits because in terms of like the cinemas in Edinburgh, you've got one film that's very arty, then you've got your kind of more commercial cinemas, and Cameo is kind of historic, uh, and it's also kind of culty, so it kind of is a perfect fit for what I'm doing. Um, and so on the 12th, it's the uh, screening of our short submissions that we had this year, so it's the shorts program. Um, and so that's a collection of the films that were sent to us through submission platform that we have on Film Freeway that, uh, and we picked out of uh, close to 150 films 
um, I think I'm up to about 14 films. I think it was. Um, so we're aiming around about 80 minutes of content of uh, various short films. So that's, yeah, 12. It's our kind of shorts program from there. Uh, the next night, um, still hoping to make it happen, is that I'm looking to screen um, one of my favorite comedy films that I've seen in the last kind of decade, uh, Thunder Road by Jim Cummings, which had um, kind of, it's done this kind of festival run. It's also kind of not, it was recently released as well. But Jim Cummings is uh, someone that he came up through making really good short comedy films. Uh, so he's like he's kind of like the idol in terms of what I look for and want for people that are making short films in terms of like making good short films, getting traction and then making the feature film, making a kind of independent feature film. So uh, at the minute, I'm just trying to negotiate. Try, well, we've kind of got programs uh, to have feature film, but trying to get some of his shorts, trying to screen some of his short films along with a kind of video introduction. So ideally that is going to think happen on so the 13th at 6 p.m. again at the Cameo. Uh, and then on the 15th, which is our, so that in part of like how I'm looking to expand Shortcom is our kind of, uh, I've somewhat done an industry day before when it was part of the Glasgow Short Film Festival. Um, so it's an industry day or it's a series, it's just <coughs> a few kind of master talks, uh, classes, uh, starting off with um, Ben Malaby, who is um, a good friend, but he's also a BAFTA-nominated uh, director. He made a, so he's one of the first people to kind of submit to Chalkcom, and he's just been a kind of very reliable person in terms of like always having great films and great and working with good people. Uh, he's a film lecturer, uh, he's made countless short films, he's constantly trying to get other sitcoms and so I was in those talks and feature films so uh, he's kind of like perfect person to just do a kind of like masterclass and kind of how to kind of probably enhance your short comedy filmmaking skills uh, and then I've got Maureen McKinnon who's going to do a talk about her kind of career as a as a film director um, I mean, so she's, as she said to me, she's not comedy per se, but um, she's very kind of cinematic and filmic. Uh, she is a BAFTA award winning. Um, so when I studied, started studying screenwriting, uh, one that we saw short films, and one of the short films that we saw that I really liked was hers uh, called Home. And uh, it's kind of always stuck with me. And she also, she went on to make a uh, feature film called Donkeys, uh, which was uh, a Scottish kind of independent film, uh, which was a weird kind of hybrid of, it was comedic and comedy, but it was also dark as well. Um, I, f I think we'll talk about that with her. Um, I don't expect everyone to come to the class to have seen the films, but um, so very much uh, looking forward to just talking about her career um, as a kind of like, uh, as a well, particularly as a female director uh, working in a country that doesn't make many films. Uh, and then who else? I've got Stuart Laws, who is he's a stand up comedian and also he runs his own production company that he started with some friends as soon as he left school. Uh, his company is called Tur Turtle Canyon Media, who have these kind of sub series Turtle Canyon Comedy, Turtle Canyon Film. 
and he does corporate work. Uh, and he's worked with, lo- like, he works with a lot of comedians down in London. Uh, he's made countless short films. He lets, he pretty much just lets the comedians have their vision uh, and make their films. And his studio, he, his production company is based in Pinewood. Uh, but anyway, he's come to talk about how he set up his production company and uh yeah kind of giving uh guidance in terms of like what he's learned along the along the way of running a production company that's still going and so um the the 12th and 13th obviously that's public anyone can mm-hmm. come to that um who who are you interested in sort of coming to your industry day and so on the 15th it's very much people it's a mix of kind of talent in terms of so it's emerging filmmaking talent uh, and maybe actors writers as well performers uh, writers so very much a mix in terms of because ideally the talks are there for people to learn but also like the people in the room what sometimes is more important about these kind of networking days is who you meet and who you potentially collaborate with uh, down the line so uh, got a decent mix already of a uh, mix of kind of writers and performers that have kind of applied Great. to kind of come along. Um, so yes, if you, now the kind of remit is is that you've either made films, you've started to make films. It doesn't necessarily mean they have to be comedy, mm-hmm. um, but you've started to show that you've uh, started making steps to making fil- that you in terms of filmmaking as an independent filmmaker. Right. So and if you maybe collaborate with people as well, okay. so. Uh, yes, and that's uh, and the kind of remit for that as well. Part of our aims with Shortcom is that we want to encourage people to be independent filmmakers, but very much outside of London. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the kind of remit for the people that are ideally coming to to um, be delegates at this kind of ma- these mass classes are based outside of London. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for being here. And thank um, you. yeah, so uh, there'll be more information on our websites and our social media as well. And uh, we'll be doing a networking night around the, I believe, on the, t- the 12th as well. So yeah, that'll be in the cameo as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. So. All right. Cool. Well, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So earlier this year at the Interborough International Film Festival, Jim Ross sat down with Sasha Collington, who directed the British comedy Love Type D. Here's a little clip from that. First of all, thank you for talking to me. Uh, congratulations on the film, uh, Love Type D. Am I right in saying it's your first feature film? That's right, yeah. So it's my first feature as a writer-director. Right. What was it about... How did this film come to be your, your first feature, or this, this story in particular? Uh, yeah, so I had a short film called Lunch Date that was basically about a, a, a young boy that's sent to dump his brother's girlfriend. And, uh, and so that played some festivals and there I met a man that wanted to invest in a feature. So at that point I hadn't actually written the feature, but he was very keen on those characters being in it. And so I thought, well, what's, you know, what can I do with these two characters? And I thought, well, she can either kind of pursue the boyfriend, but then, you know, who's, you know, what, what's interesting about that? And so I, that's why I kind of started to think about the idea of the gene that, you know, what if, 
you know, she had always been broken up with by many, many people. And in the film, we have her getting broken up by song as well. Um, and what if it was to do with like a certain genetic disposition? Because I'm very interested in science, despite <laughs> having no gift in science whatsoever. So where where did you come across this? Um, is it epi, epigenetics? Is that the, the term? So I was yes, yeah, so I read about epigenetics, and essentially, you know, I'm not a scientist, but uh, the the idea of it is that kind of things that happen to you within your own lifetime can affect your genetic code, um, and so essentially your genes can be switched on or off by actually like events that happen to you within your own lifetime. And I thought that was like incredibly interesting, um, and so I like the idea that um, because of like a decision the main character made when she was twelve, so going out with some boy for like you know four and a half days, mm -hmm. she's kind of trapped in this pattern for the rest of her life. Um, and and because I think it's very interesting the idea of like romantic patterns. You know, are you forever dating exactly the same person but with a different hairdo, or are you you know forever making exactly the same mistakes? Are you always you know behaving a certain way in relationships and then blaming the other person but then going and doing it all over again and I think it's all those things that kind of um, you know kind of helped me to develop the idea but I think it was yeah initially inspired by some articles I read about epigenetics and just the, just about genes and behavior really. I, I find it quite uh, an interesting way to to frame the film just really because it even brings in the idea of nature versus nurture really and it's this idea of how much of it is um your so sort of how you were raised your own experiences and how much of it is just baked in almost kind of like genetic fate if you like yeah um is that something you were trying to get through in the script kind of this it's always a balance between the two it's never one one or the other or yeah i think the film kind of like seeks to explore this sort of nature nurture debate um, and just the idea, um, you know, because I think there, there's a scientist out of California that was saying that he could predict what would happen to you from a baby, like whether you would get divorced or commit suicide. And, and I think, you know, that whole idea of like to what extent is your life predetermined and to what extent are you master of your own destiny? Mm. Uh, and I think, I, you know, I'm kind of very interested in that because obviously no one quite knows the answer um, and uh, including people who are really clever and, <laughs> and, uh, um, and so I think, yeah, the film sort of what explores a bit that theme. So essentially, is the universe sabotaging Frankie, the main character, or essentially is it her behaviour that's dri driving people away? Is it her bad decisions that are creating problems in her life? And one thing, I'd, and I'm just wondering if this was whether this was a conscious thing or it just comes about as a result of the the approach to do it as a comedy but one thing that I did quite like about it is it, it, it kind of subverts a little bit um, other romantic comedies and you, you have this central character Frankie who is pining after an ex effectively I mean that's what sets her off, off on the, this whole journey but what's quite interesting about it is it's not um, it's not because she's. It's not really because she's seeking acceptance from him. It's actually kind of a self-improvement journey from the start. I mean, a lot of films that you, you know you'll go through this process, and then at the end it will kind of turn down. And go, oh no, she doesn't. She doesn't need him. It's and because that always seems to be the dyna the dynamic in terms of the genders there. But here, the reason she starts down this path is it is to try and improve herself in terms of 
to try and overcome what she sees at the time anyway is this sort of disadvantage that she's been born with effectively um was that something you did consciously or does that just come about as a result of the the concept needing her to do that uh, i think it is something i thought about and i did think about like the conventions of the romantic comedy genre and i did want to do something i suppose that was a little different um because i think you know obviously romantic comedies was had you know had this massive heyday i guess it was in the 90s probably when i was like a teenager and uh, and i but i feel now you know the idea that somehow you know that the film has to end with like happy ever after like until the credits roll or or you know i feel that perhaps you know it feels maybe a bit old-fashioned you know and that people want something perhaps a little kind of more thought-provoking i'm mm. not sure but yeah so i think it was it was um definitely something i thought about like trying to kind of um see if, if we could you know kind of do anything with the genre yeah no, it's funny you mention the, the heyday of romantic comedies in the 90s and the fact that they all need happy endings because it, it, it's something that i'm because i i grew up in the 90s as well um and that's kind of what i associate the romantic comedy being everything's you know very nicely tied up and everybody's happy and you know riding off into the sunset at the end but if you go back a bit further than that and look at sort of older romantic comedies and, you know, I mean, I suppose the obvious one to think of is probably Annie Hall or something like that. They don't always do that. It seemed yeah. to go through this period where it was. So it's kind of nice that you're returning to this idea of a happy ending or a meaningful ending isn't tied up in a relationship at the end of it being there. Yeah, that's true without having too much spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, one thing I want to ask was, how, how did you go about finding Maeve, who plays the lead role of Frankie? Because she has quite a delicate balancing act to do, because she, she needs to be very likeable, we need to root for her. But at the same time, she can't come across as perfect, because clearly she's not having a lot of luck necessarily in her interactions with people, so she can't come across as perfect. Did that feed into the casting process and how you came to find her? Or? Yes, it was actually very hard to cast that role. Um, and we, you know, we saw a lot of different people, and I think it was something like two weeks. I mean, it was, maybe it was four weeks from our shoot, but it was very close to the shoot, and we hadn't cast the role. And I had seen her at a film in Berlin. I think it was the previous year called Griff the Invisible, an Australian okay. film. And and I just found her so funny, and she was very deadpan and very serious, but funny. And so in the middle of the night, I got on my laptop and I emailed her agent in Australia, and I was like, "This is a bit crazy, but you know, we're shooting this." independent British uh, comedy and you know I, I just wonder would she would she you know read for it and uh, yeah and she did and we ended up she come came over from Australia to do it but it's just she was just someone I had in my head um, for a while because I think it is a delicate balance with the character and also some of the things she does in the film a little unethical let's say <laughs> <laughs> and um, and you know in you know and I think, you know, it's also, you know, you do want people to feel sympathetic towards her and, and continue to feel sympathetic. Um, so, yeah, I was really, really pleased um, to have her on the project. And I think that she's got a great balance of comedy and deadpanness that feels, to me, entirely believable. And the, the person who spends the, the most time on screen uh, alongside her is uh, Rory, yeah. who, plays, um, who plays Wilbur. And I was wondering, what, what made you want to have him, or less specifically, uh, someone who's much younger, a kid, 
be her kind of shepherd through this process that she goes on in the film? Uh, well, I, I'm very interested in like intergenerational friendships. I think it's sort of a, an interesting thing, kind of, you know, what you can learn from somebody quite a lot older or younger than you. And, um, and I just, I guess what I like about, you know, I really enjoyed writing Wilbur. He was very fun uh, to write for his lines and stuff. But I like the fact that because he has never had a relationship, because he's never fallen in love, he's too young, he's only 12. This is a whole world that's, that isn't yet started for him, that you know in his life will happen. But I like the, uh, the innocence that he doesn't understand yet how love functions. And therefore he is a certain pragmatism that, that gives him a certain truth, you know, in the way he's able to see things. Um, and so, you know, I also find it interesting the fact that, like, it's also, you know, his, like, his introduction in a way, because, um, you know, you don't know, like, has he had a female friend before? Is this the first female friend he's ever had, but she just happens to be 27? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I th he, he was fantastic as well in, in that role. Um, I think both the leads, they, and they, there's a lot of chemistry there. I thought it worked, uh, it worked really superbly. What I was wondering was this, this because there's a lot of, um, you know, the film's very funny, it's very engaging, but there is also quite a lot going on in terms of, um, you know, relationships and how people deal with uh, ending them, uh, people's attitudes to them, and there's a lot going on there. What I was wondering is what was it about the, the high concept comedy? Because I've seen you, you've spoken about the likes of uh, Big and Groundhog Day being kind of inspirations for this. What was it about that approach, the high contact comedy, that you think communicates that best? I guess I chose the concept. I mean, you know, yeah, as a way, I suppose, of exploring that idea that you know, you, you know, that you can feel that you're uniquely sort of doomed to fail in a way mm -hmm. that you know is quite particular to you, whilst others, you know, are kind of going to succeed alongside you. So I suppose the, the concept, you know, allowed for. Um, I guess a bit more movement in exploring the themes of like yeah like what happens to people after a breakup because I watched these very interesting TED talks by this scientist called Helen Fisher where she puts people in an MRI scanner who've just been dumped basically mm. and, and it's about their brain and just and, it, and actually what they discovered is that the attachment feelings increase. So whatever chemicals in the brain are, are associated with attachment are actually stronger after someone's broken up with you. And you feel like that's so cruel of nature <laughs> to make you feel more attached to somebody after a breakup than before. And so I think it's, you know, I think the, the concept, I suppose, allows, yeah, me to explore certain thematics within love, because obviously it is quite complicated. You know, people, you know, who are otherwise, you know, very sort of, you know, kind of w put together in their lives, let's say, can go completely mad, you know, if they have a breakup or if they, you know, and I think it's just that thing where as human beings, you know, are we in totally in control of our feelings, you know, when things kind of, you know, bad happen and it's like how you deal with those things I think is interesting. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the MRI thing, it's almost like the physiological version of uh <laughs> absence makes the heart grow fonder I suppose. <laughs> it is yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so pivoting away from kind of the the content of the film obviously this is your first feature film um, how have you found that process in terms of uh, securing the financing and even getting 
cast and crew on board? How does that differ compared to the creation of the short films? I think it's just a, l a lot longer like time commitment. So I think definitely it's quite a, a transition to go from a short to a feature. And I think, um, you know, it's a bit of a baptism of, of fire at first, I suppose. Um, because it's definitely, especially when you're doing it on a low budget, it definitely feels that, you know, things can and do go wrong uh, quite sort of frequently on an independent <laughs> film shoot. <laughs> it's, uh, um, I don't know if you uh, watched Lost in La Mancha, mm. but it feels like that's just an average day. You know, the whole <laughs> of Lost in La Mancha is like one afternoon in large type D, you know, with all these things <laughs> going wrong. So I think, I think the challenge is really on that budget level, you know, trying to get people who've got you know, kind of, exp you know, enough experience in order, because, it, you know, it is tough. Like, for example, I feel like organising a shoot has to be with a military precision. But if people haven't done it before, then, you know, it's, something, it's just a skill you require. Mm. So I think it's a balance in independent film between what you can afford and then how much money you perhaps lose on the day <laughs> if your location falls through or lunch mm. is delayed by three hours. And then, you know, with the finance, you know, I raised the finance for Love Type D, so that's something... Mm that I did, um, having not done before, you know, I, I did raise the finance for a short via a Kickstarter, but that's completely different than like pitching to like private equity investors. Mm. And that's something, I suppose, a skill I acquired during the making of the film that probably is quite useful. So what, what made you want to um, submit it or screen it at the Edinburgh Film Festival? Well, I think I thought about it for a while, like with Edinburgh, because I'd come here like a very long time ago and I really, really liked it. And I just think that like Edinburgh's got a great reputation. It's such like a beautiful city. So yeah, I was, I was really keen for us to like have the film here and I was really pleased, you know, to have the premiere here. Mm. Are you planning to have the film go on the festival circuit for a while or are you looking to kind of move to a, a sale and hopefully maybe distribution or? Or a bit of both? <laughs> I think a bit of both would be nice because obviously going to film festivals is such a, it's, it's almost like the reward at the end of like this marathon you've had to run, yeah. <laughs> you know, where you get invited at the end for a big party um, to try and forget like all the work you had to do. Yeah, so I think ideally it would be nice to, to do both, I think. Yeah, um, but obviously with the film, you know, with a comedy, I think it's always nice to watch it with an audience. Um, so, you know, it would, it's, it is very nice for me to kind of like sit in on like public screenings where there are a lot of people, yeah. Uh, so I was wondering, you, fin you finished Love Type D, obviously it's going, you've said hopefully it'll go on the film festival circuit for a bit, but what's next for you in terms of production? Well, I'm actually working on a couple ideas for like episodic series. So I want to keep in the, com I want to keep in the comedy genre and also in sort of doing things that are kind of like, I guess also a bit high concept and, and a bit sciencey. I definitely love having a bit of science mm. <laughs> in the story. So yeah, that's what I've been uh, working on. And then I'm also um, starting part-time an MBA so I can build a company at the same time as developing the creative project. So basically looking to build a you know, film and TV production company. 
that's it for the July edition of Cinetopia on EHFM. Um, thank you, Jim and Annie, for your thoughts on those films. And a thank you to Sasha and Chris uh, for their interviews. Um, Cinetopia is produced by myself, Amanda, um, Annie Asikainen, and Jim Ross, and Paul Bruce, who couldn't be with us today. Um, and if you would like to follow us online, um, we're at Cinetopia Hub. Um, that's on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And also, uh, is where you can find us. Uh, thanks so much and see you next month.